Let me continue with a further moment of prayer. May God, who first spoke the worlds into existence, and then in these last days spoke to us through his Son, now speak to us from his holy word by his living spirit. Amen. Of all the various kinds of pain that men and women may have to suffer, surely few can be more agonising than the pain of rejection. For a student to be notified by his university, you have failed your examinations, you no longer have a place on this course. For an employee to be told by her boss. Your knowledge and skills are surplus to our requirements. You no longer have a place in this organisation. For a wife to hear her husband of 20 years say, I can't stand the sight of you. You no longer have a place in my life. All such experiences are, of course, deeply wounding. How painful, then, must have been the rejection experienced by Jesus Christ at his trial before Pontius Pilate. If you haven't still got your Bible open with you at that passage, then I'd be most grateful if you would reopen it at John chapter 19, and this is page 1087 in the Church Bibles. It is, as Mark has mentioned, the second part of John's account of the trial of Jesus before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. (coughs) Now, Jesus' accusers said that he had claimed to be the Son of God and to be the King of the Jews. And on that basis, they they forced a decision from Pilate, that Jesus should be executed by the most terrible means imaginable. Let us examine this evening these two grounds for their having rejected Jesus and see if perhaps there was some truth in those claims after all. Jesus was rejected then, first of all, as the Son of God. When the Jewish leaders first handed Jesus up, uh, excuse me, first hauled Jesus up before Pilate, they were struggling to think of an accusation to make against him. What charges are you bringing against this man, demands Pilate to know in chapter 18 and verse 29. Um, he's a criminal, isn't he? They splutter in verse 30. But now, by the time we reach chapter 19, those Jewish leaders have thought of something to accuse him of. We have a law, they say in chapter 19 and verse 7. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. 
Now, the law they were thinking of was probably Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 16, which says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. But not to worry too much about whether that law actually covers the situation in front of them. After all, one bad reason is as good as another if you want to justify an evil plan. But please notice this. The Jewish leaders rejected Jesus as the Son of God in accordance with certain religious principles, holding their Bibles in their hands. Do not suppose they were thinking, we are cruel and wicked people. We like nothing better than to make innocent people suffer. No. They thought they were doing God a service. They thought they had God on their side. This reminds us, does it not, that religious convictions are not necessarily good things. In fact, when you think about it, man's greatest crimes have often been his religious crimes. In the words of Blaise Pascal, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from a religious conviction. You only have to look at the mindless and insensitive episode of Koran burning in the United States and the fatal overreaction to this in Afghanistan to see the enduring truth of those words. So on religious grounds, therefore, Jesus was rejected as the Son of God. But then the second ground that they, uh, of Jesus' rejection was this. Jesus was rejected as the king of the Jews. He was rejected as the king of the Jews. Pilate was intrigued by this idea of Jesus as the king of the Jews. In chapter 18 and verse 33, he had asked Jesus outright, are you the king of the Jews? But he didn't receive an entirely straightforward answer to his question. Nobody ever received an entirely straightforward answer to any question they brought to Jesus. He always made them think deeper and beyond their own question. But the question has been raised, is Jesus the king of the Jews? And Pilate's soldiers decide to have fun with this idea by carrying out a mock coronation. Chapter 19 and verse 2 and 3, they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then with Jesus having been flogged and beaten and mocked and still wearing that ridiculous crown and robe, Pilate presents him to the Jews again. Here is your king, he says to them in verse 14. And then Pilate asked the Jews in verse 15, Shall I crucify your king? As if to say, what possible threat could this pathetic specimen be to you and your precious nation? 
we have no king but Caesar, the chief priests reply, in the ultimate rejection of all that they stood for as guardians of the ancient faith of Abraham and Moses and David and all of the the others of God's people. But in fact, all this talk about kingship hands the Jewish leaders their trump card. In verse 12 they say, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Well now, Pilate can't risk having the Jews complain about him to Caesar Tiberius. Pilate is far too unpopular a governor, and Tiberius far too suspicious an emperor for Pilate to take that risk. So in the end, Pilate, Pilate you will recall, who three times has pronounced Jesus innocent of all the charges brought against him, Pilate acts against his better judgment. Verse 16, finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And so it was that Jesus was rejected as the king of the Jews because Pilate chose to do what was expedient rather than what he knew to be right. And of course, people still do the same today, don't they? People still reject Jesus by choosing expedience over truth. I heard of a young man who, presented with the claims of Jesus Christ, declared that he was fully persuaded of their truthfulness. No more objections to the Christian faith whatsoever. Will you now become a follower of Jesus Christ then, was the question. Well, no, because quite frankly, it would mess up my lifestyle. Well, there's a kind of perverse honesty in that reply. Because yes, following Jesus does mess up your lifestyle. And what about ourselves? Will we aim to please God and do what is right, whatever the cost? Or will we take the line of least resistance and follow the crowd? And will we also pray for Christians who are in in positions of leadership that they will be true to their convictions and that they will be leaders of public opinion and not merely followers of it, as Pilate turned out to be? Here then are the two ways in which, according to this passage, Jesus was rejected by the authorities. He was rejected as the the Son of God, and he was rejected as the King of the Jews. But John, the author of this Gospel, wants us to know and to believe and put our trust in the one who was rejected as King. He wants us to know that the one rejected as King really is the King. And the one who was rejected as the Son of God really is the Son of God. Way back in chapter 1 and verse 49, John records Nathanael as as exclaiming to Jesus, Rabbi, you are 
the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So then now to turn these ideas on their head, to look at those reasons for Jesus' rejection and look for the truth, at the truthfulness of those reasons. Firstly then, the one who was rejected as king really is the king. Did Jesus in the end claim kingship for himself? Well, when asked by Pilate, are you the king of the, Jews, the, king of the Jews, Jesus did finally agree. Yes, he says in chapter 18 and verse 37, yes, you are right in saying, I am a king. So Jesus did claim it, but that doesn't make it true. Well, if there is one word that sums up kingship, surely it's the word authority. Now, who in our passage this evening exercises authority? Is it Pilate? Well, certainly he thinks that he's in control. Don't you realize, he says to Jesus in verse 10, I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? But we've already seen, haven't we, that Pilate, for all his bravado, is a slave to the threats of the Jewish leaders and to the shouts of the crowd. He's not in control at all. And as for Jesus, he certainly looks an utterly pathetic and powerless spectacle. But truly, his regal majesty shines radiantly throughout this very trial scene. Jesus may have been treated with contempt, but he responded with regal dignity, and he spoke with kingly authority. You would have no power over me, he tells Pilate in verse 11, if it were not given to you from above. And Jesus' kingly authority, although veiled in this trial scene, would soon be wonderfully vindicated. He had declared in John chapter 10 and verse 18, I have authority to lay my life down and authority to take it up again. And that claim would be gloriously vindicated just three days later. And there will come a day still yet to come when Jesus will be revealed in all of his majestic splendor. When he returns, not then as a lamb to be led to the slaughter, but as Lord of lords and King of kings. And as good old Bishop Ryle points out, vast is the contrast which there will be between the crown of glory that Christ will wear at his second advent and the crown of thorns which he wore at his first coming. The one who was rejected as king really is the king. And then secondly, the one who was rejected as the son of God really is the son of God. Again, this has been a theme right from the beginning of John's Gospel. In chapter 1 and verse 34, no less than John the Baptist bears witness to Jesus in the following words. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. 
And Jesus himself repeatedly refers to God, not just as the Father, but as my Father. And to himself, not just as a Son, but as the Son. But these are outrageous claims. But they are backed up by evidence. Within his gospel, John presents us with a series of seven miracles or signs testifying to who Jesus really is. And the last and most astounding of these is the raising to life of a man who had been dead and buried for four days. The raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11 is specifically linked with the confession of Lazarus' sister, Martha. Yes, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus called Lazarus out of that tomb and raised him to life in vindication of that very claim and confession. This raises a very serious question, however. If Jesus was truly the Son of God, what was his father doing, allowing him to endure such rejection and punishment? The Puritan George Hutchison Hutchison puts it succinctly. Christ in his sufferings was innocent of any personal crime, even in the consciences of his persecutors, whereby the Lord made it clear that his sufferings were for others. Ah, yes. Behind the malice of men in their rejection of Jesus moved the mastering love of God reaching down to a needy world. The execution of Jesus was, after all, not a tragic accident, not a mere miscarriage of justice, not even a martyrdom, but a sacrifice. John, the author of this gospel, will write in the first of his epistles, chapter 4, God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice as a propitiation for our sins. Here then are two of what have been called the ironies of the cross. The one who was rejected as king really is the king. And the one who was rejected as the son of God really is the son of God. Surely each of us has a choice before us to reject or to embrace these truths, to reject the truth of these claims and the evidence behind them and all the life that is offered through these claims, or to embrace, accept, believe and trust. For this very reason, John wrote this gospel. And surely the only proper response for any of us and for all of us and for each of us can surely be only to honour and serve Jesus as our King 
and to love and worship him as the Son of God. And as for Jesus himself, we know that it brings unspeakable joy to his heart to gather to himself a countless multitude of loyal subjects and devoted worshippers. And for him to be able to say to his father, here I am and the children God has given me. For it was in prospect of that unspeakable joy that Jesus so willingly endured the cross, scorning its shame and its rejection, and is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, the Son of God, in his rightful place of kingly authority. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we have been singing time and time again this evening of the truth of these claims of you as a lamb led to the slaughter and yet as king of kings and lord of lords, the giver of life, real life, abundant life. Messing up our lives when we believe in you but messing up in such a wonderful way it's not so much we are turned upside down, but turned the right way up again. It may seem to us shocking, Lord Jesus, that you could have been treated such in such uh, rejecting ways at your trial. But we know the unbelief, the resentment, the ignorance and the malice of the human heart. We ask now that in your great and sovereign love, you would overcome our resentment, our ignorance, our unbelief, and become king in our hearts. And the Son of God might be to us a friend, a brother, a saviour, and a lord. Amen.